All right. Praises be to our loving Father that we are able to gather once again to study his words and his commandments. So our topic for today is little horn, past and future. Now, last week we talked about the little horn in the vision uh, that Yahuwah Abba gave to his prophet Daniel. In that vision, it speaks of four creatures. Remember, it began with a lion with the wings, then a bear, and then a leopard with wings, and then there was a beast, which is a amalgamation of all the other beasts or kingdoms. And we also know about the rise of the little horn, which is representative of the Antichrist. And so what we're going to study today is about the little horn past and future. Now, before we go ahead and jump into chapter eight, there's something that we need to understand. Uh, it may be something, it may be nothing, but if you still remember, chapters 2 to 7 of the book of Daniel was written in Aramaic, but chapters 8 to 12, it picks up again in Hebrew. So this book is written in the Hebrew language. So now let's go ahead and jump to Daniel 8, 1 down to 2. During the third year of King uh, Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. And so Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 8 that he, weaves, he receives another vision. And so he mentions and references the first vision he had, which was in Daniel chapter 7 during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. So this second vision happened two years later. In this vision, he sees himself standing at the fortress of Susa. Susa, by the way, is an actual place, which is now in, in Iran. And in this place, we have found many archaeological discoveries, including the Hammurabi uh, code. So it's a nice place for biblical archaeologists to go digging. And so this is where Daniel sees himself in the vision. And in the vision, what else does he see? Daniel 8 three down to four, as I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of his way to the west, to the north, and to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. And so in this vision, Daniel sees a ram, right? In Daniel 7, in his vision back in Daniel 7, he sees four creatures. And so here, we're not surprised he sees another creature. But this time, it's a ram, right? Well, what is unusual about the ram? One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. So there's a, this ram has two horns, one of the horn, which grew later, it grew to become more prominent than the other one. And this ram, if it represents a kingdom, it's a powerful one. Because he, this kingdom, this ram, basically butted everything out of its way to the west, to the north, and to the south. And so this ram comes from the east, right? Because it's going to go to the west, to the north, and to the south. And so when it comes to the ram, if we are to study history, what was known to be a symbol or what was symbolized often by the ram? It turns out the ram was the national emblem of Persia. 
And so we're not deviating from the vision that Daniel had in chapter 7. As a matter of fact, Daniel 8 complements the vision that Daniel had in chapter 7, just using different beasts or different creatures. And so this time, it's about a ram. The ram was the national emblem of Persia. A ram being stamped on Persian coins, as well as on the headdress of Persian emperors. And so the ram represented Persia. Now, why are we absolutely sure that the ram in the vision that Daniel had was about media and Persia? Because Daniel tells us, if we fast forward a bit in Daniel 8.20, the two-horned ram represents the kings of media and Persia. So we know for sure that this ram, which has two horns, represents Media and Persia. We call it the Medo-Persian kingdom. So we know it complements the prophecy in Daniel 2, in Daniel 7, now in Daniel 8. And so there's going to be this kingdom that will conquer Babylon. It will have two horns. In Daniel 7, we know it has two sides. The bear, however, will favor one side over the other. So they're all related. And so let's continue to look at how the vision describes Medo-Persia. 8, 3 down to 4. I saw a ram with two long horns, right? And it's going to butt everything out of its way to the west, to the north, and to the south. And so it will come from the east. There's the ram. And it has two powers or two horns, which in Daniel 7 is described as a beast, uh, like a bear. It raised up one, it, uh, it was raised up on one side. So it favored one side. In other words, it was dominated more by Persia than media, right? This is why one horn was bigger than the other. And so Persia would eventually take the stance and become the more prominent kingdom of Medo-Persia, eventually becoming Persia itself. And so according to history, the bear represented the Medo-Persian empire, succeeding the Babylonian empire in this partnership between the Medes and the Persians. The Persians dominated the relationship and most people think the three ribs represent their three great military conquests, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia, which makes sense because when we look on the map where the Persian empire begins, remember it says it's going to butt its ram and it's going to cause the empire to spread to the east, right? Beginning with Babylon, also to the south, Egypt, and also to Lydia, north. And so it fulfills the details of the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 8. So the ram represents Mede-Persia, Persian empire, which defeated and conquered Babylon. However, after the vision of the ram, what comes next? Daniel 8, 5 down to 7. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat 
which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. So prior to the goat, the, the one in power was the ram, Medo-Persia, right? But in this vision that Daniel had, guess what? What happens to the goat or what happens to the ram? There's going to be a goat and it's going to challenge the ram. In fact, it charges at the ram and destroys the ram. So there's going to be a transfer of power from the ram to where? The goat. And this goat is going to swiftly become a superpower. So swiftly, it by the Bible says, it didn't even touch the ground. So he's notable for swiftness. If you still remember what the goat was likened to or what the... Uh, well, let's, before we get there, let's go ahead. I'm, I'm uh, speaking ahead of myself. I don't want to do that. I don't want to ruin the excitement. But can you kind of guess uh, what is represented by the male goat? What's represented by the goat? I mean, if we're going to think about um, Daniel 2, if we're going to think about Daniel chapter 7, what do you think the male goat represents? Yeah, I mean, what empire conquered Persia? Greece, right? And turns out 200 years, even before the time of Daniel, the Greeks were called Agadei, the goats, people, interesting. And so it's not surprising then that the goat represents Greece because Medo-Persia would be conquered rather swiftly by the Greek empire. And we know this for sure because, again, Daniel actually tells us. Well, actually, uh, an angel giving the explanation is telling Daniel the meaning of the male goat. In Daniel 8.21, the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. So according to Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, the goat represents the Greek empire. And if you still remember, this goat had one really long horn, a large horn, right? And who was that? The first king of the Greek empire. Now, who do you suppose that was? I mean, out of all the Greek um, leaders, who was the most notable one in all of history? Of course, we know that's Alexander the Great. At the age of 20, he assumed the mantle of his father, Philip of Macedon. Six years later, he had conquered the mighty Persian Empire. By the age of 30, his empire stretched from the Mediterranean to the Hindu Kush. He died at the age of 32. His legacy, a new Achilles, a new world order. Alexander was a visionary conqueror, a ruthless tyrant, and a brilliant military strategist and court politician. And so Alexander the Great represented that large horn, which is the first king of the Greek empire. If you notice where Greece is at, it's right there where the goat is at, right? And so Alexander was the true goat, the greatest of all time. 
We get it. Right. So Alexander, the goat, started their west. And so this empire will come from the west. Middle Persia came from the east, right? And so this time it's going to come from the west. And according to prophecy in Daniel 8, 8, the, go the goat became very powerful. But at the height of its power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Because the goat started out with just one really long horn, one really big horn, right? And then all of a sudden, this large horn was broken off. And the large horns in the large horn's place grew four prominent horns. What are these prominent horns? Daniel 8.21, the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greeks. And the large horn represents his, uh, between his eyes, represents the first king of the Greek empire, right? We know that's uh, Daniel. And then the male goat, I mean, after the male goat uh, progresses and uh, continues to overcome the world, eventually the first king, Alexander, would be put to death. And we know that happened. And what would happen next? Well, we get a clue, if you still remember Daniel 7, 6, when Greece is likened to a leopard, the beast also had four heads, remember? And we know the four heads uh, represent the four empires that came out of Greece. We'll talk more about that. But let's get into more details in Daniel 8, 21 and 22. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece and the large horn uh, between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. And we know after the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom, his empire divided into four parts, specifically Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, who inherited Alexander's domain after his death. Actually, they had to fight for it. There were several competitors trying to fight for the authority and power that Alexander left behind. Eventually, there were four, but there was actually five who contended. Um, if you look at the bottom, the fifth contender was Antigonus, but he was soon defeated in 301 BC. And so what you have is four to fulfill prophecy. Isn't that interesting? Bible says there's going to be four. This is why we know the leopard in Daniel 7 He's now become the goat, right? Two different animals, but the same kingdom is being described. And so the empire took 22 years to divide into the four. Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Cassander eventually would occupy Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus, one of the two boyhood tutors of Alexander the Great, he occupies Thrace, uh, Bithynia, most of Asia Minor. Seleucus, one of Philip's generals, he takes Syria, lands to the east to India, Ptolemy, Egypt, Cyrene, Arabia, uh, Pateria, parts of Asia Minor. And so in fulfillment of prophecy, Greece, which indeed conquered Medo-Persia, was divided into four kingdoms, represented by four leaders or heads, 
four notable or prominent forms, Cassander, Lysimachus, Lucius, and Ptolemy. So in the map, they take up different geographical regions. We can notice Seleucus and Ptolemy. Want to focus there because the others really did not do much. But when you look at Ptolemy and Seleucus, you notice what's lying in between Seleucus and Ptolemy. Do you see it? What's in between Seleucus and Ptolemy? Yeah, Israel. And so Israel lands right between Seleucus and Ptolemy. Guess what? They're going to be battling for that piece of land. And I wonder who's going to win. Seleucus, Ptolemy, who's going to play a role in the unfolding of prophecy concerning the land of Israel? We'll find out. So far, what we know in terms of prophecy, which is so uncannily being fulfilled right now before we speak, when we see this unfolding, we know the Greek empire rose from the west. Of previous empires, right? We see that for being fulfilled. Uh, the Greek Empire rose with greed, with great speed. The Bible says suddenly, without touching the ground. The Greek Empire had a notable ruler, Alexander the Great. That's why the Bible says a large horn. The Greek Empire had a famous war with the had a famous war with the Medo-Persian Empire. I saw him confronting the uh, the Ren, according to the Bible. The Greek Empire and the Middle Persian Empire greatly hated each other with furious power, moved with rage. Some of the greatest, fiercest battles of ancient history were fought between the Greeks and the Persians. The Greek Empire conquered the Middle Persian Empire. The Bible says no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. The reign of the notable leader of the Greek Empire was suddenly cut short. The Bible says the large horn was broken. After the end of Alexander the Great's reign, the Greek Empire was divided among the four rulers. And the Bible says in place of it, four notable ones came up. Uh, the four rulers of the Greek Empire, after Alexander's, Alexander ruled their own dominions, not the entire empire together. The Bible says they came up toward the four winds of heaven. So when we look at Daniel 8, and when we look at history of Greece and Medo-Persia, we find a perfect match in history. This is why Daniel is one of the most uh, prophetic books that really, really caused much concern among the skeptics who don't believe in the Holy Bible. Because when you read Daniel, which was written hundreds of years before the fulfillment of prophecy took place. When they read Daniel, it's like reading a history book because exactly as Daniel foretells events in the future, that's how it happens. And so if you want to show your friends that the Bible indeed is from God because of fulfilled prophecy, just go through the book of Daniel. It tells us so much about what's going to happen in the future. And we're not even done yet. We're just with the Greek empire, right? And so we know uh, that there's going to be four prominent horns, four prominent leaders from the male goat. But what happens next? Uh, Daniel 8, 8 to 9. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken and in its place, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them, 
okay, out of the four, out of the four, out of one of them came a little horn. Oh boy, there's a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And so there's going to be a little horn that will come from the Greek empire dividing into four. So one of the four is going to come a little horn. And so this little horn is not one of the four prominent ones. It will come from one of, their, one of the four kingdoms. He will rise and the Bible says he will do something, this little horn that will come from one of the four. What will this little horn do? Bible says it's going to focus its attention. I mean, it's going to expand in different places, right? South, the east, but it's focusing its attention where? The glorious land. What, what do you think is the glorious land? Huh? What is the glorious land? What could that be? In Ezekiel uh, 20, verse 6, the Bible calls um, the land of Israel. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. What is that land? <laughs> that flows with milk and honey yeah that's the land of israel and so the promise of yahuwah abba is he's going to take his people into this land of israel right and this is what happened but the captivity took place and so they were taken out of that land but they were eventually brought back into that land but that land is called by yahuwah as the glorious land right and so when we look at the prophecy the glorious land, something, uh, one of the, this little horn will be particularly interested with the glorious land, okay? And so we know that Israel, the glorious land, sits between the province of Seleucus and Ptolemy. And so they're going to fight for that land. And that's what they did. Israel's land was contested between the dynasties of Seleucid and Ptolemy. But the Seleucids gained power over the region in the days of Antiochus III. And so we know eventually the one that will control Israel was Seleucid, the Seleucid kingdom, through Antiochus III. This was about 198 BC. And when this took place, we know this little horn will probably come out from the Seleucid kingdom, right? So we have four. There's a Seleucid kingdom, which is from Greece, the Greek kingdom, the Greek empire. And from this place will come forth the fulfillment of that little horn. So let's go ahead and look for it further. Let's uh, salute this according to history books. If, by the way, you can look at Britannica, which is a lot of uh, some inf historical information that's pretty reliable. And you can also look throughout the internet for some of these materials, but the Seleucid kingdom covered Syria and Babylon. Syria was one of the two dominant divisions of the empire and continued through 20 kings. Antiochus IV, not Antiochus III. There's a distinction. Antiochus III was the one who basically gave control of Israel uh, to the Seleucid kingdom, okay? But Antiochus IV comes up. He was the eighth of these 20 Seleucid kings. He ruled from 175 to 164 BC. This means he showed up on the scene 150 or more years after 
Alexander's empire has been had been divided into four parts by his generals after his death. Now, who is Antiochus IV? He was an interesting fellow, you know. He's a, he did not really have that much of a power, but he had a lot of ego. <laughs> if you read the history of Antiochus IV, when it comes to military power and conquest, he was did not achieve much, but he was a boastful fellow. He was so boastful to the point that he wanted to remove anyone who would go against the Greek agenda, which is basically to have just one religion. And so as he pushed forth this agenda, he had, of course, an encounter with the Jews, right? Because the Jews, there's no way they're going to surrender their right to worship God. They're going to keep that. And so what does Antiochus IV do? Uh, what did he do? Uh, let's go find out some more about Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV gained the throne of his father, Antiochus III, by murdering his brother, the former King Seleucus Philopator. The son of Philopator was a rightful heir to the throne, but Antiochus IV had him held hostage in Rome. Antiochus IV legitimized his rule mainly through flattery and bribery. No wonder he did not really accomplish much, I guess, when it comes to military conquest, because he wasn't really deserving of that throne, right? How did he get it? bribery, flattery, murder. <laughs> this is what power does to you. When you have the potential to receive power, when you have the potential to sit on the throne, even if it doesn't belong to you, you will do whatever you can. If you can smell it, right? It will drive you crazy to the point you'll conceive of everything evil imaginable so that you can get that power. And Antiochus IV was like that. And so he became boastful. In fact, he became so boastful, he even added a name to himself. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. He assumed the title Epiphanes. Epiphanes means illustrious, the majestic one. And it's an allusion to deity. And so he was presenting himself as deity when he uh, assumed the title of Epiphanes. The Jews, when they were looking at this, they kind of made a play on words. The ancient Jews twisted his name to Epimenes, meaning madman, right? So instead of Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes. It's like, uh, I guess, some of the exchanges between different parties when they have an argument there on Facebook, right? They have like play on words. Well, the ones who started that were the Jews, I guess. Anyways, Antiochus the first, uh, the fourth. He's a, he's a likely candidate for this little horn character that comes out of the four that will come from the Greek empire. But what will he do? What will he be known for? Daniel 8, 10 down to 12. And it grew up to the host of heaven, this little horn. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army was gained over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast the truth to the ground. He did all this and 
prospered. And so the Bible says this little horn, he's going to focus now on the host of heaven, the stars, right? What is represented by the host? Not the host of heaven, but it just mentions cast on some of the host. It mentions the host and it mentions the stars and they'll be cast to the ground. And when you think of verbiage like that, we're thinking about the end times. And I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to go there later on. Because the Bible even says he will exalt himself, right? Calling himself Epiphanes one way. And he will even exalt himself as high as the prince of the host. Keep that in mind. Um, he's going to present himself to be like the prince of hosts. What does that mean? He's going to cast down the place of the sanctuary. And an army is going to be given to him. He did all this and he prospered, right? So what are the stars, the host, who are likened to a host or stars? In Daniel 12, 3, those who are wise shall, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to the righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And when Yahuwah made a promise to Abraham, he said his people would be like what? Stars of heaven. And so those who are living according to wisdom and lead people to righteousness, they're like stars. In Exodus 12, 41, it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the self-same day it came to pass that all the hosts of Yahuwah went out from the land of Egypt. So the host, the stars mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, that refers to the people of Israel. And so this Antiochus Epiphanes, or this little horn, he's going to create havoc among the people of Israel. And how did he do that? When did he first go to Israel, his first attack? Well, according to history, the first attack of Antiochus against the Jews of this time was to settle a rivalry for the office of high priest. I want to pause there for a while, right? You might be thinking, why would Yahuwah allow this to happen to Israel? Well, we can see here something not good happening in Israel, right? This is according to secular historians. Something's happening in Israel that's not good. What is that? They're trying to battle for the office of high priest, right? Three brothers, three brothers are going to fight for the throne of the high priest. They're going to fight for the um, rulership of Israel. And so Antiochus takes advantage of this. A pious high priest, Onias III, was removed from office and was replaced with his brother Jason because Jason bribed Antiochus. <laughs> And so uh, originally it was Onias, but then he was removed because Jason bribes Antiochus. Then in 172 BC, another brother, told you it's a battle of three brothers, right? Another brother, Menelaus, gave Antiochus an even bigger bribe <laughs> and replaced Jason. Okay, so now you have Menelaus. You start out with Onias, then it became Jason, bigger bribe, bigger bribe, Menelaus. A year later, Menelaus started selling many of the temple's gold utensils to raise money to pay off the bribe. 
<laughs> you see how bad Israel became? And they just came from captivity. Take note, they just came from captivity, right? And all of a sudden, they're going back to their stubborn ways. Onias III rebukes him, and Menelaus, what did he do? He had his brother taken to jail, no, murdered. He had his brother murdered, okay? Meanwhile, the other brother, Jason, gathered armies and fought against Menelaus to regain the office of high priest. Wow, well, such drama for one throne, right? Such drama for the office of high priest. Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem in 171 BC to defend the man who paid him a bigger bribe to be the high priest. So we can already see there's some transgression going on, right? You don't want to mess with the office of the high priest. You don't. Because when you do that, you're creating what? Transgression. There was great transgression in the people of Israel. And it affected Israel so much. What happened to Israel because of the transgression related to the office of the high priest? If you look at the passage, right, they will be cast down. They will be cast down. Yahuwah God will permit this little horn to be doing all of this. What else? The daily sacrifices will be taken away, right? What else? Place of the sanctuary will be cast down. So when you look at the passage, and it grew up to the hosts of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars of the ground, the daily sacrifices were taken away. The place of the sanctuary was cast down because of what? The transgression. This is why this little horn guy, is going to do all of this. And you know what? When you look at the history books, Antiochus did all of this. What does history say? Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Jerusalem and plundered the Jewish temple. In 168 BC, he sent an army of 20,000 men under Apollonius to level Jerusalem. They entered the city on the Sabbath, and crucified a hundred thousand people who would not worship as idols. Many of the women were horribly mutilated. Young Jewish boys had been circumcised, were hung. And so, indeed, the stars were cast, right? The hosts, well, they were trampled upon. This, was, this happened in 168 BC. Take note of that date. But you know what? The king wasn't even done yet. <laughs> Antiochus was not even done yet. To satisfy his ego, what else did he do? The king wasn't satisfied, so he issued an edict that there would be one religion in his realm. And, of course, it would not be the Jewish religion. He prohibited the Jews from honoring the Sabbath, practicing circumcision, and obeying the Levitical dietary laws. Any Jew found possessing a copy of the Law of Moses was executed. He climaxed his campaign December 14, 168 BC by replacing the Jewish altar with an altar to the Greek god Zeus and sacrificing a pig on it. All Jews were required on pain of death to sacrifice pigs to pagan gods on their altar. The failure of one family member to sacrifice was caused to execute the whole family. And so when we look at the actions of Antiochus Epiphanes, 
it fits the description of the prophecy. Antiochus came from one of the four kingdoms left behind by Alexander the Great when the Greek Empire, after his death, divided into four, right? And this little horn, he would cast or trample down the people of Israel. He would cast down the temple and he would also desecrate the temple. This happened uh, during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so we can see the fulfillment of prophecy fitting the description of history, right? From Medo-Persia to Greece, the four kingdoms, to Seleucus, and then now to Antiochus Epiphanes. And so in the vision of Daniel, what does he see next? Daniel 8, 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one uh, said to the certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So here, while Daniel was watching this little horn just kind of take over, right, doing blasphemous things, all of a sudden in Daniel's vision, he hears two holy ones speaking. And in the conversation, one asks, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation. And so one the Holy One says is there's this daily, there's this uh, daily sacrifices that was removed and the transgression of desolation, right? And then the question is asked, how long before the sanctuary is going to be cleansed? And the answer was given. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed okay now when you read daniel 8 13 and 14 in the actual hebrew it doesn't actually say 2300 days when you look at hebrew it actually says 2300 ereb and boker what is ereb evening boker morning so it mentions 2300 evenings and mornings and so there are two possibilities when you look at Daniel uh, for 2,300 days, one possibility is 2,300 days or 2,300 evenings and mornings, which would mean divided by two, right? Because a day consists of an evening and a morning, right? So is it 2,300 days or 1,150 days? Remember, this was the time that was given from the time of defilement up until the time of cleansing of the temple. 2,300 days or 1,150 days in years. It would be about 6.8 years or 3.1 years. Okay, 3.15 to be exact. And so this desecration of the temple happens because of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, well, this was happening. The Jews were not happy. And there was this one, one guy. His name was Judas Maccabee, right? 
Judas Maccabeus, also spelled Maccabeus or Maccabeus Hebrew is given there. His name is Hebrew, his name is Yahuda Hamakabi, was a Jewish priest, Kohen, and a son of the priest Mattathias. He led the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire from 167 to 160 BC. So this was Judah Maccabee. Take note of the dynasty that uh, was he was recognized for, Hasmonean dynasty. And we'll talk more about the Hasmonean dynasty, perhaps not here, but in some other future studies. But we find the Pharisees coming from this dynasty. Right? So let's go ahead and keep reading. Uh, so Julius Judah Maccabee, he did not want anything to do with uh, Antiochus IV. And so he fought against Antiochus. And what happened? Jerusalem was eventually delivered by the courageous exploits of Judas Maccabeus and his followers, of course, with the help of the Romans, because at this time, the Romans were gaining traction comes in, when it, in terms of power, right? Because we know after Greece, what comes next? Rome. And so Rome, or they were solidifying their powers, and they were particularly interested in Israel. And so they worked together with Judas Maccabeus, and the Maccabean revolt forced the Syrians out of Palestine. Look at that. Of particular importance is the fact that in 164 BC, three years uh, to the day after Antiochus IV desecrated the temple, the Jews reconstructed it to God's service. On December the 14th, 165 BC, the temple was purified. The altar of burnt offering was restored. The Jewish worship, once again, was restored. It is this event that the Jewish people must celebrate Hanukkah. I don't know if you ever wonder, what on earth is Hanukkah about, right? Well, it's supposed to be the Feast of Dedication. Now, this feast is not one of the seven feasts that was required by Yahuwah. Right? This is what the, these people, the Jews, during that time, that's what they called it, a feast of dedication. Antiochus sent, uh, went mad while in Persia. After hearing about the victories of Judas Maccabeus, he became seriously ill and died in 163 BC. So that's the end of Lilhorn, right? The Lilhorn of history. And so because of the exploits of Judas Maccabeus, we know eventually Jerusalem is able to practice again the worship based on temple sacrifices. And to commemorate the deliverance of Israel, they assign the Feast of Dedication. Now, is this Feast of Dedication, which represents the restoring, right, of the uh, temple worship. Did Yahusha, our king, recognize that? Well, it turns out the book of John, chapter 10, 22 to 23. Now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Yahushua walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So Apostle John, in writing about this event, he does not say that Yahushua um, condemns or speaks negatively of the Feast of Dedication. This passage actually is kind of like a seal of approval that indeed the cleansing took place, right? Because otherwise, why would this passage be included why would it even mention Yahusha uh, basically kind of endorsing it? 
kind of maybe giving his seal of approval that there was a cleansing of that temple during the days of uh, Maccabeus to counter the work of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so we now have some dates, right? Remember, um, we have two options. From the time of the defilement of the temple to the time of its cleansing was 1,150 days. Turns out 1,150 days, which is about three years, this is in fact was the time of the Maccabean tribulation, 168 to 167 BC, because it was 168, December 14, 168, when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, right? So at the end of three years, it was cleansed by Judas Maccabeus and his restoration of the evening and morning sacrifices. This is according to 2 Maccabees 10, 1 down to 5. Of course, we don't consider that canonical scripture, but it's there nonetheless. And it's also in other historical documents, okay? And it's amazing because this prophecy was written 350 years before the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Great prophetic fulfillment like this, you know, demonstrates God not only knows the future, he, also, he actually also guides uh, the future. But if we look at the 2,300, if, for example, we say, what if Daniel really meant 2,300 days, not 1,150 days? It turns out, quite interestingly, <laughs> right, the date when the temple was cleansed, was December 14, right, 165 BC. If we count back 2,300 days, it takes us to 171 BC, which was when Antiochus Epiphanes began his persecution against Israel. So it didn't really matter, 2,300, 1,150, it both points to who? Antiochus Epiphanes. And so we believe he was the fulfillment of that little horn in Daniel chapter 8. But we're not yet done. But before we go there, just a side note. You know that 2,300 years, there are some preachers who take the 2,300 days of Daniel chapter 8 and convert them to years. And so we have, for example, William Miller who used 2,300 year days to calculate the Christ, that Christ would return in 1844. So 2,300 years after Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the temple, his movement ended up giving birth to the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and several other movements. Today, there are some preachers who use 2,300 years, but a different start point. The start point this time is 165 BC. They add 2,300 years. That would be the time when the, the uh, earth would be cleansed. Now, there's some preachers who preach that today. So that'll be what? 2,300 minus 165. What's the calculation on that? I should have done this, but it didn't occur to me to do it. No? Anyone here? Anyone have a calculator? Just curious, what date would that be if we do 2,300 minus 165? 21, 2135. So the appearing, the coming of Yahusha would be on 21, the year 2135, plus one more year, 2136. 
So something like that. There's some preachers today who are doing that, right? But no, wouldn't give it too much weight because others have tried to do it in the past. You select a different start point, you get a different end point. Okay, so modern William Millers are, I guess, modern people who select a different uh, time point, uh, beginning point, they come up with a different end point. But the question is, you know, is it a year? I mean, is it appropriate to use the, the year to today? Could be. We don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. We will find out, right? Uh, but nevertheless, let's go back to our topic because we know this little horn was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. But is there something else? There is. What is that? Daniel 8, 15 and 17. As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me and I heard a human voice calling out from the Uliah River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. It's interesting. When he was given this vision about Greek, about uh, the ram and the goat, right? And the, about the little horn. We know it had fulfillment in the immediate future. Perhaps hundreds of years later, not too immediate, but within reason. It's an immediate future compared to the end times. But at the same time, Daniel tells us that Gabriel says to him that the events that you have seen relate to the time of the end. So Daniel, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep. He was so focused with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. Verse 19, then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. So it's clear. The prophecies that were shown, the visions that were shown, Daniel, it seems to have two fulfillments, right? One in the ancient times during the days of Daniel and henceforth in a span of hundreds of years, of course. And also at the time of wrath, that's the time of the, uh, the Lord's wrath or Yahuwah's wrath, which is the very end of time. And so the Bible's telling us there's going to be two fulfillments of this event. Very interesting. And so after saying that, again, the explanation of the meaning of the prophecy, which we discussed already, the two-horned ram. Represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. The large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek Empire. The four prominent horns that replaced the one large horn show that the Greek Empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. We know that was fulfilled in the Greek Empire in Medo Persia. Alexander the Great and the four generals of Alexander the Great setting up the four kingdoms from where. The, the little horn will come. Now take a look at how this little horn is described. If we go to the next verse, verse 23, and in the latter time, okay, the latter time of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall rise, having fierce features, 
who understands sinister schemes. Interesting. And so this little horn in the future, right? This little horn is going to have fierce features and he will understand sinister schemes. Perhaps he will dabble in the occult and new age and all of uh, be dabbling into evil spirits, witchcraft and sorcery. Very interesting. And so there seems to be two little horns. The historical fulfillment, the little horn of the past, who was that fulfilled in? Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And a future yet to be fulfilled fulfillment in the end times. And in the end times, you will have a more complete version of the fulfillment of the little horn, having fierce features and sinister schemes. When will this happen? Daniel 8.23. The, uh, the Bible is when the transgressors have reached their fullness. Apparently, the transgression caused all of this when they were vying for position to obtain the high priest position. There still seems to be a lot of uh, transgression related to that. And it will come to its full. And when that happens, that's when we will see this little horn manifest himself. 824, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Who do you think is behind it? Yeah, the evil one, the dragon himself in Revelation chapter 13. We'll discuss that when we get to Revelation. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. This did not really happen during the days of Antiochus, Epiphanes. And so what we find here is parts of the prophecy that was not completely, completely fulfilled in the first time. It will be completely manifested in the end times. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Daniel 8.25. And through his policy, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And so the Bible tells us further what this little horn guy is going to do. He practices policy, but he uses craft or deceit. So he's a politician. <laughs> he's some kind of politician who's going to broker peace. Because if you notice, by peace shall destroy many. And so he will entice people to follow him join him, be with him because of his policy and his craft. But those who follow him will eventually be destroyed because of him. You see that? So it's like a trap. This is why the Bible says they say peace and safety, and then destruction comes, right? So we need to be aware of what this person will do. And so he will set up policies that seem to be good. Yes, he will magnify himself. And he will even stand up against the prince of princes. And that can only be Yahushua. This is why he's called the Antichrist. One who is against and also one who will replace Yahushua, the Christ. And so he will get people to worship him. Okay. And then Daniel 8.26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision. For it refers to many days in the future. So it could be the 2,300 days. It could also have a counterpart in 2,300 years, right? In the future. That's possible. Because 
the little horn that was fulfilled initially, it's going to be a, there's going to be another little horn. And so dual fulfillment prophecies is not uncommon in the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. It's called typological prophecies. Remember when we discussed typological prophecies, when a prophecy is fulfilled in the immediate future, in a historical person, but that historical person has characteristics of a more complete fulfillment in the future, right? Typological prophecies. Many of the prophecies found in the Bible, it has a lot of mixing, a lot of blending of past and future. You know why? Because Yahuwah, to Yahuwah, there's no such thing as past, present, and future. Everything he sees all at the same time, right? This is why when prophecies become written, there's often a blending, a blending of characteristics of the past, the present, and the future. An example of that is Ezekiel 28, 11, and 13. Moreover, the word of Yahuwah came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And so there was an actual king of Tyre. And Ezekiel 28 is telling us prophecies, which is one of the most fascinating prophecies in all scripture. One day we'll talk about it. But in prophecy in Ezekiel 28, it speaks about the king of Tyre. Something's going to happen to the king of Tyre. And so while speaking about the king of Tyre, all of a sudden the shift, the focus shifts, right? Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says Yahuwah, Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. My goodness, say to the king of Tyre, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Do you see how? The patterns and prophecies are being blended together, right? The past, who is that? Lucifer. The present, king of Tyre. And the future prophecy, the prophecy, what will happen to, to Tyre and the king Tyre. All of that being blended, mixed together in prophetic statements. This is what makes prophecy in the Old Testament so fascinating. It's really, when you really think about it, it's really about the pattern. When you study prophecy, you look for pattern. And pattern is all over the Old Testament. And these patterns repeat themselves. Like the pattern of stubbornness. The pattern of the small remnant. It repeats itself again and again. Here's another one. A typological prophecy. Isaiah 7, 12 to 16. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test Yahuwah. Then he said, here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know, before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose to do the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And so this was a prophecy uh, assuring Ahaz that uh, his people don't have to worry about Samaria or Assyria because they're being attacked. And so Yahuwah gives a sign and he tells Ahaz, this is the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive a son. When you look at the Hebrew word of virgin, by the way, it meant it could also represent a mature individual who's not yet married. 
which is a virgin. Huh? <laughs> Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What was significant about the, the birth of this, uh, this son before the child, the son, shall know how to refuse evil and good? The land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And so how was this fulfilled? In Isaiah 8, 3 down to 4. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then Yahuwah said to me, call his name Maher, Shalal, Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And so we have a partial fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 8. You see that? But there's a more complete fulfillment. This is why Yahuwah said, call his name Maher Shal Hashbaz, because the name Emmanuel is going to be fulfilled later on. Right? When is that going to be fulfilled? Matthew 1, 22, 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with. Uh, so there's two fulfillments. The immediate, future, the, the immediate future and then a far future towards the end, a more complete uh, fulfillment. You see that? And so there are prophecies in the Bible, which has a blending, a blending of characteristics and events that represent past, present, and future. This is why when we look at the passage, we look for pattern. And it's the same thing with Daniel 8. Daniel 8 wants us to focus on the little horn. We know the little horn was fulfilled literally, historically. The little horn of the past, Antiochus Epiphanes. But there's going to be a future little horn, right? And we know that to be the Antichrist. This is why in Daniel 7, we got some clues about this little horn. We know he will uh, come from a kingdom with characteristics of other kingdoms. He will have uh, 10 horns. Oh, no, the, the little horn will have intelligence and influence, speak blasphemy, speak pompous words, will make war and prevail against the saints for three and a half years. But he'll be judged against. Um, he will rise into power and he will subdue three kings. He will come from a, a kingdom with 10 horns or 10, 10 kings. That's what we know in Daniel 7. Now, in Daniel 8, we know the characteristics described in Daniel 8 of the little horn also includes it grew up to the host of heaven. It cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars. He will exalt himself. He will again put away the daily sacrifices. Uh, the place of the sanctuary was cast down. An army was given over to the horn uh, to oppose the daily sacrifices. So he'll be given he will have an army, and he did all this and prospered. He will be a person who is knowledgeable, filled with understanding. He will use his cunning to craft policy, to promote himself. He will use um, the guise of peace to convince many to be with him, but eventually destroy them. He will stand up against the prince of princes. And eventually he shall be broken without hand. In other words, supernaturally. Is how, is, he is how he's going to be destroyed. So that's the little horn of the future, okay?
So there's a blending of prophecies here. Antiochus and Antichrist. Daniel 8 being fulfilled. And so after receiving this vision, the final passage of Daniel 8, what was the response of Daniel? Let's read. And I, Daniel, fainted. <laughs> he fainted. And was sick for days. Afterward, I, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And so the vision was so overwhelming. He actually fainted. He was exhausted. The stress, the mental anguish and stress that resulted from seeing this vision and the meaning of the vision was so stressful and overwhelming it affected him physically. Right? And we know that stress can do that, right? We know how the power that stress has. When there's too much stress at one time, it can cause you to be so exhausted, you faint. He was sick uh, for days because of this. And he did not tell anyone about the vision. Can you imagine the burden of uh, carrying this by yourself? But despite all that, despite that burden, what did he do? He said, afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. You know, we're going to face tribulations ahead. But what should we be doing? What should we be doing? Should we be overwhelmed and concerned about the little horn of the future? Should we? No. That should not be our primary concern. Our concern should be what? Our king's business. <laughs> right? Do you know who our king is? It's not Nebuchadnezzar. See, when we look at this passage, it's kind of like doom and gloom. What are we going to do? How are we going to prepare for this um, little horn? And so you're probably worried sick. No, no, brethren, don't be worried. The whole point of Daniel 8 is to teach us, be concerned about your king's business. You see, if we're concerned about doing our king's business, we will not have any burdens. That should be our focus, our king's business. You get it? And so we need to do the agenda, not our agenda, but the agenda of Yahuwah and Yahusha. What is that? Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. <laughs> what should be our focus today? Today. Bible says, let's focus on fulfilling the agenda of Yahusha. What is that? To tell people everywhere about who? About him. About Yahusha. This is our core duty. This is why before Yahusha went to heaven, he spoke to his disciples and said to them, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit because it will come. And once it comes, this is what you're to do with that power. You are to be my witnesses. What does that mean? We tell people about Yahushua. We don't tell people about anyone else. No. We don't tell people about Martin Luther, about any other preacher. We tell people about who? Who? Yahushua. Right? That's our business. That's our king's business. Do you know why? 
Why must we do this? Let's read Matthew 28, 18 and 20. Yahushua came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And when will that be fully manifested? When Yahushua returns, he will set up the kingdom of God. You see, the, the agenda of Yahuwah is to bring his kingdom on earth, right? That's his agenda. That's Yahushua's agenda. Because that kingdom, the authority, has been given him. This is why the agenda of Yahushua is the agenda of Yahuwah, which is to set up that kingdom. It's all about that kingdom that belongs to Yahushua. And so what must we do if we truly are going after our king's business? Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That includes the age when, what's his name? Little Horn. Little Horn is nothing to Yahushua. Do you think Yahushua is afraid of Little Horn? <laughs> no way. If you are a disciple of your king, your true king, Yahushua, will you be afraid of Little Horn? No. So what should be our focus? Our focus should be doing this. Preaching. Making disciples of all nations. Because that's going to represent the kingdom of Yahuwah. That he gives to his son Yahusha. And so brethren, let us focus on this. And we have the assurance. If we will go about doing the king's business, Yahusha says, I am with you. I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age. So brethren, we have no reason to be afraid and every reason to be confident and hopeful because we know who Mashiach is. We know who the true king is. Daniel did not know that, right? And so it's but right that he felt so much anguish when he saw that vision. Because he did not really know who the king is. But we know the king. We know Mashiach. And so move forward, brethren. Let us make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them the teaching and commandments of our king, Yahushua. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father. Yes. Most holy and gracious Yahuwah Alahim. Thank you so much for blessing us this evening. Yes. Thank you for giving us a message of hope. Yes. That despite tribulation and trials along the way, yes. we know that we have the promise given by your son. Yes. You have given him authority in heaven and on earth. Amen. And we know that he is with us. And you are with us yes. through him, the Emmanuel. By his presence, we have your presence Amen. as well. Loving Yahusha HaMashiach. Yes. We pledge loyalty to you. Yes. We will tell others about you. Yes. We who belong to the assembly that bears your name. Yes. We will proclaim your truth. We will do our best to make disciples of others. Yes. To baptize them and to teach them your commands. Amen. Father, please bless your people. Yes. Help us to be bold and courageous. Yes. To overcome worry and fear. 
by placing our faith and trust in you and in your words and promises. Wow. Father, bless your people throughout the world yes. that we may carry out exactly what you want us to do, especially in these last days. Amen. We believe, loving Father, you have listened to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.